Hello and welcome back to a brand new season of Chemically Speaking, the official podcast of the Royal Australian Chemical Institute. My name is Dr. Matt Griffith and I'm returning as host for this new series, where we'll once again be chatting with Australia's chemists to gain insights into the biggest trends and topics affecting the Australian chemistry landscape. Before starting today, we would like to acknowledge the Darkinjung people, the traditional custodians of the unceded lands on which Chemically Speaking was produced. We pay our respects to them and to their elders, past and present. We also extend those respects to the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, wherever you are listening. The RACI acknowledges Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's contribution and long-standing scientific knowledge and traditions, and their continuing contributions to chemistry today. We're also excited to make a few quick announcements before diving into today's content. Firstly, this year's National Congress is under three months away. We hold this every four years, and this year's event is in Brisbane on the 3rd to the 8th of July. We're looking forward to catching up with friends, old and new, up in Brisbane. There's also several social events happening at Congress this year, starting with the Queensland Early Career Chemist Group Welcome Barbecue on the Grass for all students and Early Career Chemists National. I also hear the retirees are planning a lunch throughout the Congress. Tickets are now on sale for the official welcome event and the 2021 National Awards Presentation Night. If you haven't purchased a ticket yet, there's still time to take advantage of the Early Bird Special, which closes on the 2nd of May. For more information, go to www.raci2022.com. And speaking of the RACI's awards, this year's national awards are now open for nominations and applications. In addition to our annual awards, we have a number of postgraduate student travel awards that include free registration to the RACI National Congress and will give you 500 bucks towards travel and accommodation as well. Though you will need to get in quick because applications for those awards close on the 22nd of May. This year we've also created four new awards to encourage RACI members from previously underrepresented groups, including the Ochre Award for First Nations Peoples, the Catalyst Award for Early Career Chemists from the Commercial Sector, the Welcome Award for Senior Chemists that are new to Australia, and the Vicky Gardner Advocacy Award. For information on our full suite of awards, head over to the RACI website, www.raci.org.au. And while you're there, why not check out the podcast page and send us some feedback about a topic you'd like to see covered in 2022. And of course, please jump onto your favourite podcast platform and subscribe to us to make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into today's Careers in chemistry can be exceptionally rewarding. However, it's no big secret that they can also be very demanding. There is perhaps no harder period to get through than the early career phase, the time between finishing off your training with a bachelor's degree or a PhD and making that transition to a stable job like a tenured academic or a lab management position. There's been a lot of reflection on the brain drain away from science in the early career period where high workloads, pressure to develop great metrics and win grants, and instability of employment form a cocktail of pressure that leads to many of our best and brightest walking away to seek their fortunes elsewhere. Perhaps a recent article in Nature put it best. Academia is more difficult than ever for young scientists. That's bad for them, and that's bad for science. We feel strongly that the chemistry community from individual scientists to workplaces and professional institutions like the RACI, must respond to this challenge. But how can we do this? Where do we start? 
we can't escape the reality that life in the ECR phase is intense, especially for international scientists with strong nostalgia to their roots. Ideally, our ECRs would be embarking on a journey of deep scientific discovery with time to think and develop their own unique ideas to have an impact on the world. However, the reality that's consistently reported to us by our ECRs tends to be the opposite, a mad scramble to produce results in the lab and to publish them, a desperate desire to stay at the forefront of hot topics where they end up reading papers or taking training just to improve technical skills rather than focusing on ambitious scientific discoveries. And all of this pressure is occurring right at the time many are starting young families, adding yet more pressure and ensuring less time to sneak away from busy schedules and enjoy the hobbies that they love. To help us puzzle out some successful strategies for navigating this period, today we'll speak to three of the RACI's most recent Rennie Medal winners, which we award to recognise our most exceptional ECR researchers. We'll talk about their journeys and approach to science, trying to tease out some tips and tricks to smooth out the early career phase and make a successful transition beyond it to a rewarding career in chemistry. Our first guest today is Associate Professor Nick White, who is an ARC Future Fellow in the School of Chemistry at the Australian National University. His group researches supramolecular chemistry and is particularly interested in anions, hydrogen bonding, halogen bonding, and self-assembly. Awarded the RACI Rennie Medal for Outstanding Early to Mid-Career Research and an award for teaching excellence from ANU, Nick has a passion for getting materials with relatively weak interactions to self-assemble into 3D architectures. Nick's work is opening up exciting new avenues in enzyme encapsulation and the creation of 2D material nanosheets. Nick, thanks for joining us today on Chemically Speaking. Thanks very much, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. You did your chemistry degree at the University of Otago in New Zealand, where an undergraduate research project got you interested in coordination chemistry. What is it about this particular area of science that grabbed your attention? I really enjoyed sort of the the making molecules aspects. Certainly my summer research project, quite a lot of what I was doing, the challenge was actually trying to make new ligands. And so it was kind of, we had this organic molecule that we wanted to make. That was our goal in mind. And, you know, you try the first way and it wouldn't work inevitably. And so it's sort of a bit of a, I guess, almost like a puzzle trying to work out what other ways we could go and, and, and how we'd get to that molecule. And then eventually when we did get there, then you kind of have the opportunity to throw lots of metals at it. And that's, I guess, much more unexpected, which I, I quite, you know, you never know quite what's going to happen, which I found quite interesting. And I got to do crystallography, which I, I find really fascinating. Excellent. So following some interests and getting to do a bit of problem solving along the way. I know that your supervisor was really instrumental in your decision after finishing this undergraduate degree to move from New Zealand to the UK to start a PhD. So in general, how have your mentors impacted your experience throughout your career development from, say, undergraduate to a successful early career researcher? They've been hugely helpful. So my my undergraduate mental supervisor was, was Sally Brooker, and she was yeah, as you say, kind of encouraged me to go overseas and to, to see new things. Um, and so I've had sort of a undergraduate supervisor, PhD supervisor and postdoc supervisor, and they're all really different, but all really good. And I, I think it was only later that I maybe understood how fortunate I was to have three really good supervisors along the way. And yeah, I mean, very different scenarios and very different styles, but um, yeah, really, really helpful. Excellent. And I guess... 
you've sort of commented a little bit on all the places you've worked. And for a researcher, you are quite well traveled, completing an undergraduate degree in New Zealand and a PhD at Oxford in the UK, then a postdoc at the University of British Columbia in Canada, and now establishing your own group at the ANU here in Australia. So we often hear about the importance of international experience in our field. How significant do you think the concept of a global researcher is when you're trying to forge an academic career? I think for me personally, it was absolutely crucial. It's been absolutely crucial. Um, and I think, I guess I've been quite fortunate that I haven't had things that stop me traveling, whether that be, you know, personal things or a global pandemic or whatever. I, I, I was able to travel without too much hindrance. But for me, it was, you know, I saw a lot of new things. Um, I, I learned things. I, I saw different ways of thinking about things. And I, I did slightly different areas of chemistry in each of them, all of which have now kind of tied into my independent career with a bit of a hindsight they were all great but certainly the first move from New Zealand to Britain was really tough um New Zealand I was at quite a small university my parents live in New Zealand I had quite an established friend network and I suddenly went to Britain everything was different it's it was a huge department and I was very much a tiny kind of piece almost anonymous in this, this big department and and at least initially none of the chemistry worked so the first six months I really missed you know I was like why did I do this I had such a great supervisor in New Zealand I had you know surrounded by friends and but um, it got better, and, and with the benefit of hindsight, it was, for me, a really great move, and I don't think I would have this job if I hadn't made that move. Okay, it's, it's interesting to hear. So perhaps forging, forging some skills in the difficulties of the challenges of moving from place to place. And so as someone who has recently made a successful transition from postdoc to group leader, if you reflect back on this journey, how opportunistic as opposed to, say, strategic do you feel that you had to be while trying to make this transition? For instance, identifying new areas of work or applying for fellowships and grants early on. I guess another way to phrase this would be, what part do you think luck plays in all of this? 99.5%? I don't know. A huge, huge proportion, yeah. I don't think I was really at all strategic. I think very, very lucky. And, you know, even when I started, I guess by the time I got to applying for jobs, I guess I was at a point where I was, could be a little bit more strategic. But even then, I mean, I when I was doing a postdoc, my original plan was to try and move back to New Zealand. But New Zealand is a very small country. There's very few universities. There's very few academic jobs. So I was kind of thinking um, Britain and, and applied for quite a few things there, either um, some academic jobs, some kind of junior research fellowships, and just didn't didn't get close, no interviews, nothing. And then just sort of happened to come across the job advert ANU, applied, didn't hear anything for months, so I assumed it was just a no. And then sort of when I was, so I did one postdoc for just over two years and I'd, I'd sort of planned or thought I would have to do two. So when I was just basically getting the point of instead emailing people to try and find a postdoc supervisor, I just got this email out of the blue from ANU saying, oh, do you mind if we check, contact your references? And I was like, oh, maybe I'll just, I'll wait and see how, if anything comes of this. And and after not hearing for months, it then happened quite quickly and it and I guess here I am. Yeah. yeah, wow, what a story. So it sounds like hiding in the background here, there's a, a fairly strong message of resilience and, and repeatedly trying to, to sort of pursue this career pathway despite some roadblocks that maybe we don't often hear about. You've mentioned already that you have these fantastic mentors and then as you start to transition through your career, you're looking to build collaborative links with colleagues as perhaps more equals rather than mentor-supervisor. What strategies did you find the most effective for developing these networks during this ECR phase of your career? I find that 
a pretty tricky question because I don't think I, I don't know. When I, when I hear the words networking, I think of like people who can go up to people at conferences and just kind of go, Hey, professor X, I really liked your paper about this. And you know, and I am very much not someone that can do that. I, I don't know that I'm shy, but I'm certainly not someone who will walk up to strangers. And, and so kind of a lot of the people I've met and worked with or collaborators have been through, I guess, quite organic things where I visited their department or, you know, there was a, I went to a really good conference in Britain, which is specifically aimed at people who've just been appointed. And I recognized this guy. I think we must've talked at a, a conference when we were PhD students and we just got chatting and everyone at this conference gave a little talk and he just talked about this work, kind of doing exfoliating um, materials into 2D sheets. And I, I just sort of said, oh, that sounds really cool. You know, we're working on hydrogen bonded frameworks. If we ever get anything that's kind of 2D, do you reckon it would be interesting? And he said, oh, yeah, that'd be really interesting. You know, if you ever get something, get in touch. And it was just kind of that comment. And then a couple of years later, we did. And I emailed him kind of thinking, is he just going to think I'm some weirdo cold calling him? But he was very enthusiastic. And, and we got a, a nice paper out of it. And we just applied for a, a British grant together. So, yeah, I mean, and, you know, over time, we get on really well. And, and, and it's, you know, it's not just some, some random stranger. But And I guess once you're a group leader, it gets a bit easier because you, you tend to be giving the talk and then people can feel comfortable to come up and talk to you because they know at least something about what you do and they've got kind of an in-tail conversation. But yeah, when you're a PhD student and you're one of 300 posters or something, it's pretty hard, I found, to kind of really, yeah. I'm, I'm not someone who goes up to strangers and starts conversations. Well, some people can do that really well, but yeah. And I guess over the last few years in particular, there's been quite a big shift towards impact and engagement as these key metrics of performance for scientists. So how has the development of these new online academic communities and promotional tools like, say, Twitter or LinkedIn, have they helped at all in visibility and engagement for your activities in research? I can't speak to LinkedIn because I've never had a LinkedIn profile. <laughs> but um, Twitter right? to me has been really useful and in kind of a few ways. But, um, yeah, one thing I noticed was that I, you know, when I got my DECRA, I got a little bit of money to have a one-year postdoc and I was, you know, a brand new not not a big deal, no one had really heard of me, and yet put the advert on Twitter and got like a really strong field of applications. And around the same time, I was on the selection panel for someone who's a really big deal in the field, who's not on Twitter, and had a, and was advertising for like longer positions, two of them, you know, they should have been way more attractive, they should have had a much better pool of applicants, but I guess, you know, the not being on Twitter, I think that's where a lot of people go to look for jobs and things. And I think the other thing kind of with networking and, and stuff like that is there's a really active chemistry community on Twitter, you know, typically not talking or a lot of the conversation, not specifically about research, but because of more the environment around it. And I, I find that really helpful. It can, I guess it can risk becoming a bit of an echo chamber, but um, yeah, I, I, I quite like it. Excellent. Very interesting to hear. And so now that you do run your own research group, and for any interested listeners out there, feel free to check out the fantastic white supramolecular chemistry group at ANU. What are a few of the key skills or, say, bits of wisdom that you try and pass on to your own students and postdocs? Thanks for the plug. <laughs> I, I try to um, share a bit of, you know, sort of talk about what had happened in, in what I my career. Maybe they get sick of hearing, you know, the, the role of luck and you know, for me, really, all my results for my PhD came in the last year. And I think that's quite a, maybe, maybe that's cutting a bit fine, but you know, that's quite common. So, you know, 
the fact that nothing's worked this week or this month is is not unusual and, and not something that you should be unduly concerned about. Yeah, and I guess just trying to get them to sort of think of try and do new things and, and you know be as creative as they can. Although I guess being told to be creative is like the least helpful. <laughs> be creative now. <laughs> I hope that I'm relatively open. That I think I was you know there's an awful lot of luck in in my career and and that you know that's I think probably a factor in in most people's if they're honest career you know yeah yeah you absolutely have I think it's a it's a great piece of advice um and so I guess that brings us to the end of our journey today so uh, on behalf of us here at Chemically Speaking thanks for making the time it's been fascinating chatting with you about your journey today Nick oh, thanks very much Welcome back to Chemically Speaking. I'm Dr. Matt Griffith, and today we're discussing navigating the early to mid-career transition in chemistry. Our second guest is Professor Debbie Sylvester-Dean, who is a research leader, ARC Future Fellow, and professor in the School of Molecular and Life Sciences at Curtin University. Debbie works at the interface of physical, analytical, and materials chemistry, leading a group that employs electrochemical methods and materials characterization techniques to investigate electrode processes for fundamental and applied research. She's a WA tall poppy and was elected as a fellow of the RACI in 2020, winning several RACI awards over the years, including the AM Bond Medal for Contributions to Electrochemistry, the Peter W. Alexander Medal for Contributions to Analytical Chemistry, the Rennie Medal for Outstanding Early to Mid-Career Research, and the RACI Physical Chemistry Lectureship. In 2021, Debbie was awarded the Lefebvre Medal from the Australian Academy of Science, the top mid-career award for research in chemistry. Welcome to Chemically Speaking, Debbie, and we're delighted you could join us today. Thanks for having me. A great teacher in high school helped steer you out of a work experience job in accounting and into a university degree in chemistry. What was it about chemistry that you connected with? Um, so as a kid, I was always attracted to the physical sciences, but it was actually maths that was my best and my favourite subject. So I thought I would always go on to do a maths-based job. Um, but the work experience made me realise that I wasn't quite ready to sit in front of a computer and I wanted to do something much more practical and more hands-on. So that's when my A-level chemistry teacher, Mr Kiff, he sat me down and he said, look, you're quite smart, I think you can do anything, but you should consider doing a chemistry degree because you can get this practical hands-on thing that you're craving, but also get the chance to use your math skills to solve problems. So he made me realise that a chemistry degree could open up a lot more doors than just a maths degree alone, and that's how I went into chemistry. Fantastic, following that passion into an applied science. And following this theme, you then end up cold contacting a professor in the USA for a project whilst you're on an exchange at the University of North Carolina. And this person turns out to be one of the world's leading analytical chemists. I think this story highlights the benefits we often hear about regarding overseas research and networking. What would you suggest to research students and ECRs as the most important opportunity that you can take if you want to pursue a career path in academia? Um, so I really loved my undergrad in the UK, but I couldn't turn down the opportunity to study abroad 
because I really wanted to broaden my horizons. And as part of this study abroad program, we had to choose a research project. And as you say, I was very fortunate that I cold contacted a um, world leading scientist, Professor Royce Murray. And this set me up really well for the career in research. So I would say to students and early career researchers that if you see an opportunity such as this to broaden your horizons, then don't be afraid to take it as you never know where it will lead you. Now, if we fast forward a few years, you start looking for jobs and email your CV to several Australian research leaders before finding your position as a postdoctoral researcher at Curtin University. Now, on a CV, we often fast forward from this early postdoc years to your success later on getting an ARC DECRA fellowship. But I'm curious if you experienced any failures or challenges in this early postdoc phase that typically wouldn't get highlighted and how you managed to cope with these challenges. Um, yeah, so after my PhD, I knew I didn't know exactly where I wanted to work, but knew that I wanted to go overseas for a postdoc because I had such a great experience in the US. So I identified the different world leaders in Australia that best align with my research. And um, one of them came back with this positive job offer that brought me all the way to Perth. But unfortunately, in my first year, I realised that our research vision didn't quite align and I came really, really close to dropping out of academia altogether. And it was shortly after that that I had a great mentor, Professor Damien Arrigan, who asked me the question, do I want to be treated as a postdoc working on someone else's project or do I want to work on my own projects and have an independent career? And that was a really defining point in my career. And I would say it's actually a pivotal moment. And you can see that I went with the second option, which led me to applying for my DECRA. And that began my independent career. Yeah. And what a fantastic success story it's been, as you mentioned, a successful DECRA project. And then quickly applying to the mid-career level future fellowship program where you, again, were successful. What did you find more important to your career in this early to mid transition phase? Was it developing your professional networks or was it building your CV with high quality papers? And so I personally think that to be successful with fellowships, it's really your science and the track record that's going to make you stand out over other people. So building that solid publication record Um, especially for future fellowships where you're the senior or the corresponding author is really important. So say that you're successful with a DECRA, you have a bit more stability, you've got three years of a contract. That's the time when you can really focus a bit more on developing your network um, because this is also important because some of these people are going to be reviewing your future grants. They might be on the College of Experts and it helps if they already know you and if you've left a good impression. So my, um, my advice is to build your publication record first and then work on the network afterwards. Now, during this period, you also had a couple of children and had to balance a demanding career and taking time out to raise a young family, which, as we know, is a particular challenge for female academics. How do you think institutional policies around inclusivity or indeed lack of inclusivity might impact ECR and the career paths that they choose? Um, So in my experience, I think I was very lucky because I had both of my children while I was on my DECRA and the ARC has the policies which allow you to extend the fellowship 
um, up to six years in that time for, for these kind of experiences. And Curtin actually has a very generous policy of six months full pay maternity leave, which I took twice for both of my kids. So I would say the transition to motherhood in academia was fairly smooth for me, but it's obviously not that way for everybody. So I'd like to see this leave policy extended to all universities but also for other fellowships or postdocs to be able to extend the contract rather than cutting off a project because you have a set time limit. And um, for those who are in really heavy teaching positions, I think a reduced teaching load for the year that you return to work would be really helpful to get you back up to speed and um, to give you time to do research, which is often very hard in those early stages. One thing which I would love to see more of is more formal return to work policies where you're supported by your institution. And that could be, for example, having an assigned mentor or someone who's faced very similar challenges, who's happy to work with you and to help you get back onto track. Um, and um, also to help guide you towards maybe some carers grants that you might not have um, known were available to you. Well, wow, lots of insights there and some fantastic ideas for the future. Let's hope we see some of those come in in the next few years. And now you've been involved with the RACI for many years and indeed have won many RACI prizes too, so we congratulate you on those. What are the benefits to becoming involved with a professional institution like the RACI? Um, I joined the RACI when I knew that I was going to stay in Australia after my initial rough year or two when I almost dropped out. Um, And since I joined the RACI, it's opened many opportunities to build networks all across the country. So I started by attending different meetings, different conferences, and I got involved in three different divisions, the electrochemistry, the analytical and environmental chemistry, and the physical chemistry divisions. Excellent. And so through all of these processes that we've discussed today, you've now jumped this career gap from an ECR to a senior research leader and have started mentoring the next generation of young researchers. If we ask them, what would your students say is the best piece of advice you've ever given them? Um, So I'm going to answer this in terms of my past students, because I think that's really where you have the evidence to see if you've been a great mentor. And I'm pleased to say that many of my students have gone on to successful positions in academia or industry. And for them to get there, I think the best piece of advice that I've given them is to network and to network early. So in pre-COVID times, this would be attending and presenting your work at meetings or conferences where you then might end up meeting someone that has money to hire you on a postdoc or someone that's organising a conference and wants some early career researchers to talk. Um, Obviously, this is a bit harder recently, um, but things like social media and creating online profiles for yourselves can be easily done during COVID times. So I'm a big Twitter user myself, and I think if PhD students can get on Twitter and become active, then they can find and make networks that way. And you never know, this may end up leading to invitations to give seminars or collaborations or for future jobs. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I guess we've talked a lot today and indeed across this episode about the qualities of the current generation of leaders. But if we look forward to the next generation of scientists, is there anything unique or any unique skill sets you think they will need to start developing 
to make that jump from student to postdoc and again beyond? Um, Well, I think it's quite obvious from my story that resilience is a key quality that's needed to make that transition to group leader. And um, I can't emphasise enough that there are many failures and rejections in academia. And it's really about how you handle those and how you pick yourself up and try again the next time. Um, So many of the awards that I applied for, I didn't get the first time. I've had to apply multiple times and it's just about how you keep on going and how resilient you are. And another thing is also I've realised as a group leader, you need to have very good people management skills. So everyone has different personalities, different needs, and they have their own strengths and weaknesses. So you need to be able to work with a range of different people and get the best out of them. And finally, the third thing, I think it's really important to have a good support network of friends and peers that can lift you up when you're down. And then as a um, more senior person now, um, I think that it's important that we are willing to support others, especially the junior scientists when they're going through hard times, um, to try to pull them up and to pay forward our experiences to the next generation. What a fantastic message to finish on today, paying it forward to this next generation of superstars. Uh, Debbie, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. And on behalf of RACI's Chemically Speaking, we're looking forward to all of your future successes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Chemically Speaking. I'm Dr. Matt Griffith, and today we're discussing navigating the early to mid-career transition in chemistry. Our final guest on today's episode is Associate Professor Naraj Sharma, who is an ARC Future Fellow in the School of Chemistry at the University of New South Wales. His research interests are based on solid-state chemistry, designing new materials and investigating their structure-property relationships, particularly for use in new battery systems. Naraj has been the RACI Nyholm Youth Lecturer and has won the New South Wales Premier's Prize for Science and Engineering in the Early Career Researcher in Physical Sciences category. He's also won a New South Wales Young Tall Poppy Award, an Australian Synchrotron Research Award, and the RACI's own Rennie Memorial Medal for Outstanding Early to Mid-Career Research. Naraj, it's a pleasure to chat with you today on Chemically Speaking. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure being here. You grew up with a mum who was a physicist. Did that leave an impression on you in terms of gravitating towards an academic career? I think it did, um, although she was never uh, forcing this into my to my chain of thoughts. She was always uh, basically showing me what she does. Um, I used to go visit her work um, during the holidays, as I, as I did for my father as well. Um, and I, it was just inspiring to see her work, um, see what she does and her colleagues. But I think what really left a mark was, um, you know, I got to go to her graduation, her PhD graduation. And that was really cool as a teenager to see, see her graduate and see the type of work she does. It's, it's good. And in retrospect, I'm glad I am where I am today. It's, it's part of, definitely part of um, her passion that was up to me. Thankfully, we were able to steal you away from that early physics influence and get you into the field of chemistry. So could you share with us what it was that enticed you into further study and indeed a research career in chemistry? I would describe myself as someone who has been the face between chemistry and physics. 
right? someone who is uh, who loves chemistry or who also loves physics. And so uh, I'm at that interface, so uh, it's really nice being there because I can actually do a little bit of both. I get the best of both worlds. Um, and one of the things that sort of really inspires me of chemistry is, you know, that whole idea of atomic structure and how things happen at that atomic scale um, and trying to understand that, trying to manipulate that. I also found that I couldn't do a PhD in the same building as my mother, so that might have been another, one other one of the reason to come to, as she calls it, the dark side of chemistry. Right. I think that's a great reason. And now it turns out that you've had a little bit of a unique experience for an academic, having completed your undergraduate, your PhD, your postdoc, and indeed now establishing your own research group, all without leaving the city of Sydney. Did you ever feel like you missed out on some of the opportunities that, say, your well-travelled peers may have had along this career path? I don't think so. One of the reasons is because I love travel and I've always gone overseas and never put the opportunity to. So I've done short visits, I've done sabbaticals, I've done trips overseas for conferences. And so I've tried to really capture that experience, that international experience in my own way. Um, and that's sort of where I've learned to really collaborate well as well. One of the reasons why I say this is because um, during my postdoc at ANSTO, um, I wasn't able to synthesize a lot of materials because I was at the neutron scattering facility, and so I had to collaborate. And so one of the great things about that was that I got to work with lots of different people, different environments. Then I go to visit their labs, and then I get to see how they work. And then, you know, it's sort of internationalization of science is quite cool because I've been able to capture that with my collaborations as well as short visits as articles instead of the sort of postdoc purposes. Yeah, that, that's fantastic to hear because we do often hear, you know, you have to go overseas, you have to have this international experience, but here we have living proof that you don't have to. You can just be clever about uh, working internationally without having to go yourself. And so you've, you've already sort of touched on a few of the collaborative projects that you were involved in, and indeed you've been involved in many different projects supported by multidisciplinary teams. So how did you go about developing your collaborations that enabled these projects? I think it evolves over time and depending on where career stage you're at as well. Um, so during my PhD with Chris Ling at Sydney University, I had the opportunity to um, go to Portugal to do some oxide ion conductivity measurements, which we couldn't do at Sydney University at that stage. And so that was one way where my, my supervisor and I sort of worked out what we are going to do and linked in with a group in Portugal. During my time at ANSTO with my PhD, uh, my postdoc advisor, Professor Peterson, Vanessa Peterson, as I said before, we couldn't um, synthesize very many things. Um, and so one of the things we could do is work with Australian collaborators. They've got these materials. So you read the paper and you say, oh, it's fantastic material. If I could do neutron scattering on that, I could actually do, I could, I could take it to the next level. And so you email them and say, look, do you have, if you've got some of the materials, can you send, send them over and we can do some experiments and maybe we can you know, get some new information about this, new insight on this. And so people were more than happy to send stuff to us. Um, and then when you sort of show them the results, they're like, wow, this is amazing. And then, you know, you've captured them. It's like a, you know, a little uh, thing that you captured them and then they work with you um, throughout. During my, and then when I started my own group, I sort of kept that going um, where I had some strong links with um, some groups and then I expanded that into new areas and tried to uh, sort of let 
talk to the groups and say, look, this is me, this is what we can do. Um, if you've got some exciting samples, could you send them across? Or this sample is very exciting, send it across and we'll do some um, experiments on it. And so I leveraged the opportunities that I had in terms of the resources that we were here, that in Australia in particular, so the synchrotron and neutron scanning facilities at ANSTO, um, to basically kind of fill a gap in the literature in the space, especially in the sort of battery space where I'm in, where a lot of my research is in at the moment. Uh, this whole idea of in-situ characterization using these major, major facilities, which I could apply for beam time for, and I could build up a track record for, um, and then just work with different people in their materials. So I was really, really fortunate, and I guess a lot of puzzles, a lot of pieces of the puzzles sort of fitted in really nicely. So it, it sounds like the strategy there is to have a very, very good understanding of what you are uniquely good at and then to fit in around people that are uniquely good at something else to work towards something that's bigger than either individual groups. Is that a fair assessment there? Correct, correct. So the idea is to uh, be complementary and to leverage off each other's strengths. Hmm. Yeah, excellent. Now, you've been involved with the RACI for a few years and we should note have been recognised for your research excellence with the Rennie Medal. What do you think are the benefits of joining a professional network like the RACI? I think one needs to belong somewhere and um, it's a professional thing <laughs> as well, right? You know, in your university, in your own job, you need to belong to, to an organisation, to your organisation, to your startup. Um, but yeah, I think the belonging to a society that is designed for chemists, helps chemists, is quite important. Um, and it, it, it provides you the opportunity to work with other people, network with other people, but also to, to belong to something that is bigger than yourself. It's the discipline and promote the discipline and make sure that the discipline is recognized as, as it should be. Oh, what, what a fantastic answer. I'm, I'm blown away by that answer. I could not have put it better myself. You now lead a group of uh, quite diverse next generation of young researchers. So if we ask them, what would your students say, or perhaps what would you hope they would say, is the best piece of advice that you've ever given them? I hope they would say, enjoy what you do um, and be passionate about what you do and give it your best shot. And that would be the, the three little things that um, I hope they would say. Um, well, what a message. Uh, Naraj, it's been fantastic chatting with you today. I've really enjoyed it. And on behalf of all of us here at Chemically Speaking, thank you for joining us today and all the very best for the future. Thank you very much, Matthew, and thank you very much, Rafi. What fascinating journeys. As we reflect on what we can learn from today's three guests, I'm struck by how different each of their pathways to leadership was. As suspected, there's probably no magic formula to get ahead in the ECR phase, but there were some repeating themes that came out in the stories of our guests, so perhaps that's a good place to focus our conclusion today. We heard a lot about resilience. Although we focus on the grant success and the high-impact papers of our leaders, all three of these amazing researchers freely admitted to a fair amount of trials, tribulations, and even outright failure along their journeys. Developing the coping skills and mindset to keep pushing through failure seems to be a critical skill for making it through the ECR phase. We also heard about having a sense to belong. 
whether that's achieved through a personal network of collaborators or professional bodies like the RACI, developing a sense of community to help you build a niche and make an impact was a key enabler in each of our guests' successful journeys. And finally, we heard about taking opportunities. For Nick, this was a series of overseas placements, while Naraj stayed in Sydney but sought out a host of collaborators to work with, and Debbie turned the loss of a postdoc supervisor into the chance to work on a self-directed ECR project, creating her own new scientific directions. Whatever shape it takes for you, when opportunity comes knocking, it seems that our ECRs all had the same approach. Take it and don't look back. And that's it for our first episode of Chemically Speaking in 2022. Don't forget to subscribe to listen to future episodes on Apple, Google, or Spotify podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Better yet, write us a review or jump on the website and get in touch. We really would love to hear back from you. A huge thanks as we bid farewell to the new podcast team, Dr. Rosie Young, Vina Kellipan, Jesse Mullen, Andrew Carmichael and Isabel Weston for coming aboard and helping put together our fantastic 2022 content. I'm Dr. Matt Griffith and our team will be back in May with a new episode exploring the chemistry behind chocolate. Until then, I hope your days are brightened by a little tweak of chemistry.